The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Funding for the Capital Weekly Podcast is provided by the California Endowment and by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Greetings and welcome to Capital Weekly's podcast. I'm John Howard. Joining me today is Rob Gunnison, former journalist extraordinaire, former administrator of the uh, Cal Berkeley uh, Graduate School of Journalism, and now we've roped him into sitting at our desk. So greetings, Rob. Thank you for having me. We wanted to talk about, um, which we've been talking about for the last hour or so, uh, oral histories. We're starting to, with your help and with the State Library's help, we're starting to post those on the Capital Weekly website. Uh, and they've been great. Delton Henderson, uh, former federal judge, uh, George Steffies, uh, former lobbyist, and now he's just done another one. Uh, who who'd we do now? We, uh, we've videotaped uh, Dick Ratcliffe, who was a lobbyist uh, in in Sacramento for oh about almost close to forty years, and uh, was an independent lobbyist, sole practitioner much of the time. And uh, he was interviewed by Steve Wiegand, who was my partner at the San Francisco Chronicle for many years. Oh, yeah. I heard a story about Steve Wiegand that had nothing to do with the uh, podcast. <laughs> but, uh, there was some editor at the Sacramento Bee who said, these are the words. We don't use these, okay? These are cliches. Words like facility and implement and all these. So Wiegand turned in a story that had all of them in the lead. That's right. It was the ombudsman <laughs> for the newspaper who uh, yeah, forbid those. And they wanted to, I think they wanted to fire Wiegand. <laughs> Uh, and he said, where does it say in the contract you can't use cliches? <laughs> <laughs> I think that was written into the AP contract, right? right you must use cliches, yeah. <laughs> um, on the oral histories, uh, the, how do you come up with the people you want to talk to? What's, uh, is there any process at all, or is it like we do here at Capitol, we just sort of put our hands in a basket and pick them out? Well, I, I'd like to say it was somehow scientific, but I, frankly... Uh, well, we did Thelton Henderson and George Steffes. Both of them had been on my mind for a long time. Uh, Thelton Henderson had been on my mind since I, when I worked at Berkeley and he came to class uh, one day, an investigative reporting class taught by uh, Lowell Bergman. And Lowell and uh, Thelton Henderson have been friends for many years. I think uh, Thelton actually performed the marriage ceremony for Lowell and his wife. And uh, he, I found him so frank and uh, amazing. And in that class, he said he was the poster boy for, for being an activist judge, which I've never forgotten him saying that. Um, and always thought that he would be someone I would like to get as an oral history. And uh, George Steffes, much the same way. I'd gotten to know him some when I was, when I was working and, uh, as a reporter. And I knew that he'd been Ronald Reagan's lobbyist in the legislature. And... To be perfectly frank, he, there are not many people around Sacramento anymore who worked for Ronald Reagan when he was governor of California, and I wanted to get George on video recalling those what those days were like, and particularly because uh, Reagan has been, you know, the sort of the object of myths of what kind of a conservative politician mm -hmm. he yeah. was, and George Steffes's remembrance are, are very different as a very practical politician who was willing to make a deal. Mm -hmm. That was my, you know, that's my memory too. Of people who were here before I came, uh, they recalled Reagan the same way. Somebody would say something one way, but then he was able to cut a deal in private and was an, able to negotiate. Yeah, and uh, George was very good about uh, talking about his relationship with Bob Moretti, who was the Democratic Speaker, mm -hmm. and they began disliking each other intensely. Uh, <laughs> 
and but they were both as as George said they came to Sacramento to do something to actually accomplish public policy goals and they uh, did a, a big welfare reform measure that they uh, negotiated with their staffs and so forth in a, in a remarkable way of bipartisanship. Democrats were in the majority, but there was a Republican governor, and they were able to make a deal. Imagine that, a deal. <laughs> Is it hard to get these people to participate? Do you sort of go up to them out of the blue and say, hey, we're doing an oral history project. Judge, can you come on in and talk to us, or George? Well, no, it's not It's not hard to get them to participate. It's uh, it's time-consuming. We give them lots of lead time. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's in a way, it's more collaborative than straight journalism is, where you kind of, you know, don't want to tip your hand too much. We're much more collaborative. We tell, this is what we want to talk about. You know, these are things we're interested in. If you have papers you'd like us to look at or things you want to recommend that we should be looking at, yeah. we, we do that. And uh, we, so we try to let them, we don't want to, it's, it's, we try to do this as a conversation and we also are trying to use people as the interviewers have, who have some kind of relationship with the, with the person on the other side of the table. Mm-hmm, they, yeah. It's not a, a cold call in a way. It's, it's not like an old-fashioned press interview. It's, a, it's more of a conversation. People, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, then what defines an oral history? What makes an oral history different than some other interview? It's like, when does a hill become a mountain? Um, I, I don't know. I, I, well, I do know. I, I think the oral history people have, they have a bunch of standards about what constitutes an oral history, but the, the primary uh, goal seems to be intensive research going into it. You don't walk in cold, but you know, you have a set of questions you want to ask based on in a lot of research that has gone into it. So we were lucky with Lou Cannon interviewing George Steffes. They've been, they've been friends for years. George Steffes has been a source for Lou's books on Reagan, and uh, they had a, a great relationship that comes across in in the interview, I think. And they and Lowell again was very familiar with with Judge Henderson's work on the bench and so forth. But it, it, Judge Henderson, t- we had uh, two. I hired two researchers and myself who worked for probably well over I don't know five six weeks on getting ready for the interview with with Judge Henderson. There was so much information out there, mm. so many cases to read. There was a book. There's a documentary film. He's been on television. So there were lots of things to uh, and his and his history went back to uh, well, you know he graduated from the law school at Berkeley in the '60s, but he had a whole personal history of growing up in South Central Los Angeles before that, mm-hmm. and w- what it was like to be an African American in LA in those years and at Berkeley and and so on. So there was a, a huge amount of information to go through, and we edited a lot of it down to make it more digestible for for viewers. There's so many nuggets in that. We've talked about this. I thought this was really interesting. The, uh, in Dalton Henderson's uh, oral history, uh, young Department of Justice attorney, he's down in the South. Martin Luther King is down in the South and has appearances um, and is being followed and surveilled uh, by local authorities. Martin Luther King, his car breaks down, and Dalton Henderson offers him his vehicle to use, which he's rented. He's a Justice Department employee. Uh, People watching, following uh, Martin Luther King see that uh, license plate number. They run the plate, and lo and behold, um, this guy works for the Justice Department at a time. That car was rented by a Justice Department employee at a time, and there's supposed to be distance between them, and it caused a major scandal. I and mean, we talked about that before. With that, why did that become a scandal? I mean, it started to, and then... Well, it, it did become a scandal... Um, 
for the reasons you state, because uh, Judge Henderson sort of compromised the Department of Justice position of neutrality. Um, he's African American. He was he and Martin Luther King. And, were, and his staff were staying at the only hotel in Birmingham where they could stay. The A.G. Gaston Motel was the only hotel where blacks could stay in Birmingham at that Is time. Is it still in business? Uh, I don't ble- I believe it's still there, but it's not in business as a motel, I don't believe. Um, so they, they saw each other all the time at, you know, breakfast and meals and so forth. So there was a, a relationship there. And you're right, he did, Felton was driving his car into the parking lot and... Martin Luther King was going out, and he was worried about the, this car, and asked if he could borrow it. And Felton loaned him the car. He didn't drive, which is what the original assertion was that he drove the car, which he didn't. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's it. Became a scandal, and it partly that was no that was in October 1963. And one of the things that def- and and Felton Henderson was fired for that incident. But what and but they're continuing investigations, and one of the things that diffused it, of course, is a month later, John F. Kennedy was assassinated, and wow. the, and America's attention was diverted. That's amazing. That's the thing about the oral histories. It's amazing, and you've never, I've never heard that anywhere else. It may have been cited somewhere in a book or article or something, but it's pretty, that's pretty amazing. I think. Um, Getting the underpinning of a story that's not publicly uh, known, but but seeing the people who were players in big stories, I think is what makes a lot of for me anyway. What makes the oral histories really interesting, and you're not going to get it anywhere else. And they're usually older; they may not be around here forever. And this is a time well, to get them. And the other thing I think about them being older is that they're maybe willing to go on the record finally about something they will not have talked about in the past. Oh, absolutely. You know, and I think that that's something, I mean, most people who do yeah. oral histories do tend to be on the older side, so they're <laughs> a little more forthright than they would have been. Did everybody know George Steffi's was uh, Lou Cannon's source? I think that's great. Well, I he, like was, he, he was mentioned by, I mean, he is in the index, and oh, okay. he, he is quoted directly, uh, but he he also did tell a story during the oral history we'd never heard before about Nancy Reagan, uh, who, uh, again, somebody who, about whom there are many... Uh, opinions and yeah. stereotypes and so forth, and he talked about what it was like when Nancy Reagan called him one day because uh, uh, someone had said some unkind things about Governor Reagan, and she was she had one purpose in her, her life, and that was to protect Ronald Reagan, and Reagan was sort of a gullible kind of like Odie in the comic strip kind of guy, uh, and. Uh, and and somebody, a legislator, had said something uh, that she didn't like, and she called George Steffes and and uh, to complain about it. And he was a lobbyist, so she wanted him to do something about it. And George said, uh, Nancy, he was a horse's ass before he said it, and he's a horse's ass after he said it. And well, she said, well, what are you going to? Well, she said, what are you going to do about it? And that's what he told her. And she said, well, okay, thank you, goodbye. Um, so, you know, her her fierce. Uh, Demeanor was, you know, sort of melted away when George sort of explained the reality of it to him, you know. So it was, it was an interesting insight and into her. And there were a couple of other instances that are in the oral history about their relationship and, and how she tried to protect mm-hmm. Reagan. I always thought of Reagan as, uh, before I came to Sacramento, was sort of stiff and formal and conservative, which in a lot of ways he was. But um, I saw some photos that only one of them wound up moving on the wire at the Associated Press was what Walt Zabosky, photographer there, had taken, had gone into Reagan's, uh, into the inner sanctum sort of, and he, he was meeting with some kids. I think they were, they might have been disabled, mm-hmm. um, and one of the kids was really cute, and he was sitting on Reagan's lap, 
And out of nowhere, he reached out and grabbed Reagan by the nose and started twisting. <laughs> and so Walt got all these pictures, one of which he moved on the wire. But they had asked him, I think they asked him, not don't put those pictures out there, but yeah. it was really a cute picture. It's, happened to every grandfather out there, I think. You know? Yeah, right. I, I, somebody wants to discussing Reagan said, you know, he'd be like a great neighbor. You know, if you want to go and borrow the ladder, he's going to loan you the ladder. You know, he was, he was that kind of guy. Uh, it was very, I think he'd been, uh, in Cannon's books, it talks about, you know, his personality and, and so forth. He'd yeah. sort of always been that way. There's sort of this, he never, he didn't want to fire anybody, yeah. you know, he, uh, on his staff. Even when they screwed up, he, that was not his way. And the, Somebody else had to deal with that. He, if you worked on his staff, he trusted you. He believed in you, and and that's why you were there. Um, he was very much the, uh, the 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 product as it was in Hollywood. You know, he, he was oh, yeah, yeah. he was the he was the actor, and everybody else was you know the producers and the associate producers and so forth. But he was the the product. Off there, topic of uh, of the oral histories, did you ever cover Reagan personally? When I, I came to Sacramento in uh, the summer of 1974, it was the last, uh, so he was just going out of office, and I, I did cover him a few times there, and uh, and I, I remember covering when he and Nancy broke ground uh, for the governor's mansion out on, well, uh, along the American River, and they had sort of spray-painted gold shovels that they used um, to break ground, out. and they were very pleased and very uh proud of the uh, achievement of going to build that mansion. You know, they didn't like the one over here on 16th Street. Uh, they thought it was a fire trap. They lived in East Sacramento while they were here, and he was going to build this. And then Jerry Brown gets elected, and he said it looked like a Safeway and never lived there. And eventually the state sold the place. So it, uh, and I covered him when he was a candidate for uh, president uh, quite a bit in 76 and 80. And, uh, I never covered him except one time he was on the desk and uh, he had been quoted in the Northwest as saying, trees make pollution. Yeah. So I'm on the desk in San Francisco and he called and said, you know, he said, hey, I'm Ronald Reagan. I'd like to respond to that. And I <laughs> took some quotes and we put it into a story. That's it. That's my experience. With covering. I, well, I was the bureau manager in Sacramento for UPI and uh, one of my employees I assigned, when he was running in 1980, I assigned Diane Curtis to cover him wherever he went in the country. Uh, because it was, it was a California story as well as a national story, and I knew the AP wouldn't do that. Yeah, and uh, can't I, spell cheap without AP. Right, and I spent <laughs> a ton of UPI's money with Diane. Traveled with him everywhere she went. I remember one night she called me. It was pretty late, and she was on the East Coast, and she said, "He just told a Polish joke. What should I do?" <laughs> <laughs> well, Rob, one last question, if. Um if I may, what uh, what possible what subjects are out there for future oral histories, uh, or can you name anybody that's well, you're I, looking at now? I I'm, I'm I'm reluctant to name people until I actually have them on videotape and make that happen. I there's endless communities in California that that seem unexplored to me, mm-hmm. and I would like the, uh, the to. To try to get oral histories there, uh, the the Hmong in Merced, the the the, uh, the Sikh community in in Yuba County um, or Yuba City, um, I, marijuana growers. I mean, this is an emerging industry that we don't have any of them telling how the, how this industry emerged. So there's sort of endless opportunities there, and there's a, you know there's some segments of of California. 
uh, economy and society that are pretty well documented. The entertainment business actually does a pretty good job. The Writers Guild has an extraordinary collection of oral histories at their library. Oh. Many of them are online, and they have blacklisted writers and so forth. So, you know, where are, where are these other communities, and, and how can we explore them? That's what I'm interested in doing. Great. Great. Rob Gunnison, thank you very much. Thanks John for joining Howard. us. Always a privilege. <laughs> Tim Foster, thank you. Sure. Uh, this is John Howard. We'll see you next time around. Thank you. Thank you.